This is Macro Horizons, Episode 12, March 32nd, and the Fish of April, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey and friend star Ross Geller, played by John Hill, to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of March 32nd, and an acknowledgement that the state of the world today leaves any April Fool's prank just believable enough that we'll refrain. So sit back and enjoy this episode that is brought to you by the Stephen Moore Campaign for the Return of the Beloved Gold Standard. See what we did there? The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market, but more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. If I were to pick a word to describe this past week, I think rally would be appropriate. Ian, given we've seen new yield lows established across the curve, what's your big takeaway from the last few trading sessions? The price action itself has really been the biggest story this week. And without any new fundamental information, we've seen the market materially repriced to lower yields and lower yields that imply a more aggressive rate cutting campaign than we've seen at any point so far in this cycle. Now, that isn't to say that the FOMC isn't poised to start lowering the target funds rate. In fact, we'll draw the parallels with what occurred in the 2006 and 2007 period in which we saw effective Fed funds at 525 and two-year yields trading sustainably 50 to 70 basis points below that level for 12 to 18 months. That's very telling and should inform what we expect over the course of 2019. Said differently, twos can trade well inside of effective Fed funds, which is now at 240, for a sustainable period without triggering a Fed response. The Fed's reliance on financial conditions to guide monetary policy decisions have really complicated matters during this particular point in the cycle. For context, the January 4th comments from Powell in which he emphasized patience, on rate hikes and flexibility for the balance sheet were clearly a response to tighter financial conditions, which were driven by a spike in equity market volatility, which owed to the sell-off in the domestic stock market. That's a very clear transfer mechanism to tighter financial conditions. But now that the market is pricing in a reasonable probability of a rate cut by the end of 2019, the equity market is well off of the lows And with that dynamic comes easier financial conditions. So what we're characterizing as the Powell paradox 
is this idea that the Fed will struggle to come up with the justification using the financial conditions framework to ease and follow through on what the market has been pricing in, and that eventually creates a vulnerability to domestic stocks. The big question in my mind is how long does that take to play out? Is that a first half issue or is it something that actually drags on throughout 2019? The conversations have obviously turned to if and when rate cuts are coming. We maintain that 240 will be the terminal rate for this cycle. The question we're debating is whether we see rate cuts in 2019 or if we see Powell hold policy steady into 2020. There's been very little official communication from the Fed at this point, which isn't particularly surprising. In terms of the economic data, consumer confidence missed expectations rather dramatically, but the most notable aspect of the conference board report was the fact that the labor market differential fell to such a degree that we've only seen while we've been in prior recessions. That's simply the spread between jobs plentiful and jobs hard to get. We know the labor market tends to be a lagging indicator, and we've been on about this idea that any time the three-month moving average of the unemployment rate increases three-tenths of a percent or more, we're either entering or actively in a recession. So that's a matrix that we will continue to keep an eye on as we go into the upcoming employment report. The essential debate of whether the cyclical re-steepening in the twos tens curve has commenced or not remains, and we find ourselves in an environment where we have bull steepening when the market is bid and bear flattening when we see a sell-off in outright yield levels. Now, that isn't particularly surprising, and we actually expect that that will characterize trading uh, at least for the coming weeks until we get something more definitive in terms of the economic outlook or any potential policy response. The outright drop in yields brought 10 years well through effective Fed funds, which to characterize this as a brave new world would be an understatement, but we will be watching 240 as a pivotal level in the coming weeks as well. The time-tested wisdom about living in interesting times certainly comes to mind, and the spike in volatility does speak to an interesting, if not exciting, market here in Treasury space. We often endeavor to be as intellectually honest as possible. During this episode of Macro Horizons, what we'd like to do is we'd like to take a look at a few core tenants that we have in the market with the goal of having a relatively even-handed debate. And I think the most logical debate to have at this point is what does the inversion of the three-month tens curve mean? So unsurprisingly, after last week's inversion, this is a question we've been getting nonstop. And it's something that people are paying a lot of attention to, but it also runs the risk of kind of headline-driven reactionary thought, where it's like, wow, three-month tens are just inverted. Historically, this has portended a recession. Does that mean we're in a recession? Does that mean it's imminent? Does that mean that there's some nonlinear tightening of financial conditions and panic? And I guess we'd like to provide some nuance in that and kind of argue that no, not necessarily. The other aspect of this that I find very striking is at the end of the day, there's very little difference between the curve being at three basis points and the curve being at negative one basis point. 
There's nothing magical that happens when you cross the zero threshold for a curve. Let's face it, twos fives has been inverted for a while. The crossover of three-month bills versus tens has refocused the market on a very large amount of Fed research on the topic of using the curve to predict a recession. However, it isn't as simple as curves now inverted, up next, a recession. Yeah, and it's important to keep in mind the scale of the inversion, right? Like a few basis points here or there, to your point, is a lot less worrisome than if three-month tens drop to negative 50. Because all this really says is just overnight funding rates over the next three months, you know, think of bills, as compared to longer-term investment returns are kind of equivalent. So the Fed is just, if you were to say the Fed's at neutral and we should expect to see rates on hold, that expected path of policy would lead to a flat curve if you abstract away from term premia. Fed's come out and basically said, we're done hiking for this cycle. It's not crazy to then think that we're flat. To me, the more ominous signs are when you're seeing pretty deep inversions take place in the belly of the curve where threes and fives have even rallied through the bottom of the Fed's target range. Well, the caveat there being more expensive financing in the short run to acquire or purchase longer run lower yielding assets is eventually going to be a constraint on profitability. Yeah, and that's the whole point of a hiking cycle, right? Is it's to provide some type of a constraint in order to have economic activity, face some headwinds to avoid the market getting out over its skis, providing unsustainable valuations or accelerating inflation. Well, the strange part of this cycle is that we have seen the Fed content to hike rates, even given the conspicuous absence of inflation. So when we think about an economy overheating, some of the typical indicators are not only year-over-year core inflation, but also wage inflation. And I would say that there's an important nuance here is if the economy is overheating, the Fed should move into a restrictive stance of territory. In other words, put overnight real rates above neutral, above our star. This is a theoretical construct. They haven't done that this cycle. At best, they've kind of gone to neutral, which is more consistent with the idea that we're not seeing accelerating inflation, though to your point, we are seeing some pickup in wage gains that just translate into real raises for U.S. employees. So on that theoretical concept argument, we don't really know what neutral is. Obviously, we have the Fed's estimates of it. I tend to think of neutral as something that you'll know long after you've passed it. The entire process of this particular cycle is made all the more complex by the unwinding of the balance sheet and now the end of the unwinding of the balance sheet. One of the things that I've been struggling with is what happens if and when the equity market looks at the actions of the Fed and simply says, well, that's not enough to support these valuations. The Fed is going to be extremely reluctant to start cutting rates before the domestic data dictates it should. So what then happens to risk assets overall? What would you say to the possibility of equity investors getting spooked? Maybe we see a modest correction in stocks. So the Fed eases rates maybe just one time, maybe just a drop in policy rates without actually going into a quote unquote cutting cycle, bringing Fed funds all the way back down to zero. That strikes me as a version of the Goldilocks scenario in which the Fed has managed to fine-tune monetary policy and really create that soft landing that seems ever so elusive. 
I would say the communication challenge around that would be incredibly difficult, right? Like in previous instances, the Fed's either on an on-hold regime, a hiking regime, or a cut regime. And at a high level, it's hard to argue nuance with some of these things. Just think about the debate on the balance sheet. Well, remember the 90s? Of course you don't, John. For those of us who were around in the 90s, the Fed was actually able to pull off a fine-tuning rate cut and be on hold for a longer period than in typical cycles. Does that mean that this is the reality that we're facing at the moment? Could be. It certainly is the argument that those who are not looking for the Fed to start a more aggressive easing campaign have been making. I'd say it also runs a serious risk of a self-fulfilling dynamic where you see an inverted curve, you see cuts, and the market looks back and investors look back. And we're like, wow, we're really late cycle. A recession is coming. We're going to pull back on investment, pull back on a variety of other things. And you could almost trip into a recession. And were they to try to execute such a stabilization cut, if you will, the communication would have to make sure to avoid that risk, which I think is a very live risk given where we're at in the cycle. In terms of the self-fulfilling aspect of this, in practical terms, the way I like to think about it is if a particular curve inverts or we have a cumulative number of curves inverting enough that the narrative within the media and within the market becomes recession warnings flashing, we might eventually find ourselves in a situation where equities just can't sustain the current valuations. They drop comparable to what we saw in December of last year or even more recently in the wake of the March FOMC. And that in and of itself translates to higher equity market volatility and tighter financial conditions, thereby forcing the Fed's hand. And in general, I think we like to stay away from arguments that are framed in the this time is different narrative. But we have been hearing that maybe this time is somewhat different and that the curve may not be as inverted as it might seem, given the lack of term premium that exists in the market right now, which is much different than what we saw in inversions past. Yeah. So if you have 200 basis points of term premium in tens, that means that tens basically have to rally all that much more in order to invert three month tens. Whereas now, if you have negative term premium, it gets there much quicker in the cycle. So perhaps the recession indicator isn't as strong as it was. Fair enough. From a pure policy expectations way to look at interest rates, that makes sense. But you can easily adjust that by looking at any term premium model is going to have the risk neutral yield to basically take out term premium. And then you could just look at risk neutral twos, tens, for example. Even doing that, though, still shows the curves at cycle flats heading towards inversion. And okay, fair enough, maybe interpreting the exact timing and probability of any recession gets complicated. But directionally, I think the argument remains quite intact. And now for something completely different, MMT. MMT, Modern Monetary Theory. So this is a topic which has been in the news lately, and we've certainly received some questions about what we think of MMT. And rather than try to get into any of the partisan back and forth, because it's kind of tied with some of the political narratives, I think this could be a nice opportunity to take a step back, be like, what is MMT? What are the implications? And uh, kind of help frame the debate. So as far as I can tell, MMT is the theory that sovereign governments, which can issue debt in their own currency and are kind of a reserve currency, 
of some form are basically able to issue as much debt as they want without inflationary costs. Now, that's probably overly simplistic, but the way I'm thinking about it is I think what they're trying to do with this theory is explain kind of how some of the world already works. Like if you had this story where huge amounts of debt are going to be hyperinflationary, push up yields vis-a-vis the U.S. in 2016, 2017, that narrative, or say Japan with, you know, its sovereign debt is 200% of outstanding, all else equal, that should crowd out investment, lead to higher real yields and accelerating inflation. Instead, we don't see that. And it kind of questions some of the standard economic logic as to why. And I guess when I'm thinking of MMT, a couple things to really emphasize. One, deficits do matter eventually. If you're over-revving an economy versus kind of its output gap and neutral, you're going to see inflation. So deficits do matter. You have to also focus on the FX channel. If you just print money and issue bonds indefinitely, eventually that's certainly going to impact the currency, which would hit through import prices. But the reality is we're in a low neutral rate world where central banks are doing everything they possibly can in order to just try to get stable growth. In such a world, it's not crazy to see more fiscal expenditures to try to help close the output gap kind of from the aggregate demand side rather than the money supply side. But one, we already have high levels of deficits. So there's going to be concern on that side. But Two, it depends on how you spend those fiscal flows. If there are just fiscal transfers rather than investments, which would lead to higher productivity or economic growth in the future, each of those two have very different longer-run implications, even if it both translates into higher issuance, higher debt, and more modest growth forecasts going forward. Well, I think you really did a great job of outlining some of the risks and the issues with MMT. The first point that you made that I thought was particularly good was FX as a release valve for some of the differing rate expectations and issuance expectations. One of the things that I actually took away from 2018 wasn't the run-up in treasury issuance and the fact that foreign buyers largely stepped away from the treasury market, but rather who came in to fill that void wasn't surprising. Obviously, it was domestic players, but the real new piece of information contained in that was the level at which they came in. And this speaks to the idea that buyers in the treasury market are comfortable with lower rates during a period at which the economic outlook was much brighter than it is now that we're in 2019, suggesting that investors are not particularly worried about an acceleration in inflation. More to the point, the realities of the 2018 tax reforms didn't result in companies investing in production and increasing productivity, which would thereby lead to higher wages and risk inflation, but rather we saw an increase in share buybacks, special dividends, and M&A activity, which arguably does the opposite. And the reality is for most of the past decade, at least some economists out there have been calling for more fiscal stimulus in order to push forward. During the Obama administration, you had guys like Larry Summers or Paul Krugman, who were very vocal on this point. And President Trump certainly hammered it home with some of his tax cuts. He wanted an increase in fiscal spending, infrastructure programs, what have you. So the idea that there is more fiscal space to borrow, 
and make investments is clear, whether you call that modern monetary theory or just more fiscal space kind of seems like a gray area to me. But the point is that in a world where policymakers struggle to close the output gap, this does suggest that we're in a different place than in the 70s or 80s, where huge amounts of borrowing would automatically translate into higher rates, higher inflation. Now it's a little bit more nuanced. And to your point, Ian, it really depends on how that money is being used, as well as how other things in the economy look, be it the demographic picture or what have you. One of the things that I would add to that is we do spend a fair amount of time comparing this cycle with prior cycles. And again, to reiterate that we try to avoid any argument that starts with the phrase, this time is different. Nonetheless, I will go down this path. This time is different insofar as the rate cuts that the Fed delivered during the crisis, the forays into QE, were countered to some extent, by the increase in banking regulation. So while the Fed was effectively working with the scalpel of monetary policy, Congress was providing a significant offset by using the proverbial sledgehammer of increasing the reserve ratio. So in practical terms, that has really plummeted the velocity of money. And with money velocity as low as it is, it's difficult to imagine internally generated inflation in that environment. And I think this is an extremely important point for thinking about where interest rates should be in the future. So one of the back of the envelope things that some people look at is look at growth forecasts. That should be 10-year treasury yields plus some term premium or something like that. Because of the heightened demand for safe assets, for government safe assets, be it HQLA level one or reserves at the Fed, you're now seeing increased demand for these assets, which should keep treasury yields lower. So there's some puzzlement out there about why have growth expectations and tens kind of diverged. I would argue that's not necessarily as much as a puzzle. Once you factor in the regulatory demand for treasuries, and even when we think of the balance sheet normalization question, sure, reserves are coming down, but that's also corresponding with an increase in treasury issuance outstanding. And that being said, even with kind of the underlying structural demand in the form of domestic buyers, there is still the prospect of a downturn in the next several years. And with the Treasury Department right now forecasting $12 trillion more of issuance over the next 10 years, you have to think that the distribution of risk around that is skewed to the upside. So sure, right now, deficits don't matter. February was the widest ever, but there will come a point when it does. And that's something that policymakers need to be cognizant of. Well, this does bring up a pretty fundamental question, and that is what happens in the event that treasury issuance actually starts to crowd out demand for other fixed income instruments. We saw a little bit of that in the beginning of 2018. And my bigger concern is that when Treasury really starts to ramp up issuance, that the impact is actually not necessarily higher Treasury rates that break us out to an elevated yield plateau, but rather a crowding out on the corporate side and we see the compression in corporate spreads that has been so universal over the last several years start to materially reverse. And that then leads to austerity measures on the corporate side, 
layoffs, consolidations, cutting wages, and then that's where we see the translation into a deeper recession. That recession then, because of the lower inflation and lower growth expectations, puts a cap on how far we would expect 10, 30-year yields to back up, frankly. And before we run out of time, this is a slightly related note. I thought something that might be good to hit on is quarter end and particularly Japanese year end and how that kind of has played out in the treasury market in recent days and any spillover as we get into April. Well, there's a fair amount of seasonality in the treasury market. We tend to think of the beginning of the year as having an upward bias for yields that's resolved around the beginning of June. And then between the first week of June and the second week of September, there has historically been a rally in treasuries. Obviously, given the price action so far in 2019, it's difficult to really look at the seasonals as a true guide. One bit of nuance, though, is that as we approach the beginning of the Japanese fiscal year, I'd expect to see investment strategies for the next 12 months put into place. And I can't imagine that wouldn't involve some type of allocation towards U.S. Treasuries, given where we are in the broader cycle. Now, we all know that hedging costs have made it very unattractive for Japanese investors to buy Treasuries and swap them back into yen. However, there's a point in which the outright yield level in the U.S., versus comparable sovereign debt everywhere else makes treasuries just an attractive buy. Seems like this will be an important thing to watch in the next couple of weeks, especially how much buying may or may not be executed with hedging costs or not. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Classically, one of those issues that we're keeping an eye on for the moment, we do have a few key data series published by the Central Bank of Japan that we can look at in this regard, and we'll be keeping an eye on that. For those looking for any witty pop culture references, we're still waiting. Anyone? Anyone? Hill? Hill? Bond life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. In the week ahead, the most compelling piece of new fundamental information will come in the form of the BOS employment report between non-farm payrolls average hourly earnings, and the unemployment rate, we should get enough information to set the trading tone for the treasury market for at least the next week or two. In terms of NFP, we'd be surprised not to see some type of spike following February's dismal 20,000 print. In fact, a lot of that was attributed to weather. And so the idea that employees are getting back to work and there will be upward pressure on NFP follows intuitively. As far as average hourly earnings, wages still continue to be a key driver for those who retain hope that inflation will finally reemerge from its conspicuous absence. And to the final point of the unemployment rate, it's now well off the cycle low of 3.7, and we'll be interested to see how the three-month moving average plays out in the context of what we have seen throughout the first quarter. Let us not forget that we also have retail sales, which, given the revisions that we saw last week to fourth quarter consumption, will leave the state of the consumer in the limelight. We also get the ISM series, both manufacturing and non-manufacturing. 
which will offer further details that spill over into the broader growth narrative, which leaves the open question of just how warranted the current growth fears really are. There's no treasury supply to speak of in the nominal market, so any incremental need to price in an auction concession has been removed. We still think any time that 10-year yields back up north of 250, 255, there'll be a fair amount of buying interest. Again, it does seem a distance away from where we currently stand. However, month and quarter end influences will be behind us as April gets underway. And that will also bring the beginning of the Japanese fiscal new year. Now, it's not clear if there will be a concerted effort to move back into the treasury market, certainly not immediately, but over the longer term, particularly if and when hedging costs become less onerous, we'd expect the Japanese buyers would scale in, particularly in the 5, 7, and 10-year sector. We still like buying dips and taking advantage of any flattening beyond the cycle low of 9 basis points to scale into what we expect to be the biggest trade of 2019, which is the cyclical re-steepening of 2's 10's. In terms of specific trade recommendations outside of our broader take on the shape of the curve and the outright level of yields, We currently like going long the January 21 FRNs. This represents a 16 basis point pickup over three-month bills and is, not surprisingly, almost 20 basis points over the nominal 10-year yield. They will presumably adjust lower at some point, but as an alternative to rolling either a one- or three-month bill, there's still comparable reinvestment risk. We closed out our tactical long in 10-year tips at a profit. Now we're looking to take advantage of any cheapening to reset that tactical long. Overall, the theme remains one of consolidation for the yield curve, particularly twos, tens, in an environment in which nominal yields are edging lower. We've reached the point in this episode at which we would sincerely like to thank anyone who has managed to listen this far and offer our respect and condolences. For anyone not receiving our written work, please feel free to reach out to be added to the list. And to the anonymous reader who insists on sending us a fresh tin of spam for every update we email, thank you very much as our stockpiles continue to build and preparations for our dystopian Plan B are well underway. But seriously, that's a joke. We just eat the spam. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, we'll rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.